Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the, for the many ways you're working in this small but mighty fellowship, Father, a church dedicated to following you in truth and in spirit. Father, we don't know what you have planned in the future. We couldn't know, Father, for it would overwhelm us if you were to show us all that is possible and all that will happen. But what we can do, Father, is we can prepare as you've given us opportunity. We can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can put our minds and our hearts to the study of your word and concern ourselves, Father, with the witness we live. In the meantime, we can do the things you've made possible so that we can be ready for the things we can never anticipate, so that we would be ready in the day, Father, when you bring it, and so that on our judgment we will be deemed a faithful servant, Father. Thank you for the chance to know these things in advance so that we may prepare and receive the reward you held out for us, Father. Let the word this morning open our hearts, open our ears, convict us and guide us into all righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, it was last week that we began the second major section in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And it begins a laundry list of issues that were brought to Paul's attention by a delegation. Each of these issues that Paul is going to address from what he's heard concerning the church in Corinth, each of these issues traces to spiritual immaturity and to ignorance in the body of Christ in Corinth. And when you combine immaturity with ignorance, you end up at arrogance. And that's what Paul has said is true in this church. We call that hubris last week, which simply means being self-satisfied and unconcerned with the consequences of our choices and our actions. And that's the, the gist of what's wrong in Corinth right now. But we also studied last week, and we will continue to study, that there are consequences for sin. Those consequences will reach sometimes beyond ourselves, especially if that sin takes place in a public manner and in the church body. Simply put, Christians have been bought with a price, that is, with the blood of Christ. And as a result, we no longer are our own, Paul says. Our decisions and our choices now belong to Christ. He owns us, he directs us, and ultimately he judges us. And so we will be called into account for the sin that we have in this life. We're not going to be held under the judgment of sin, for that has been paid by Christ. But there will be consequences for our failure to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, we're told. And so if this church in Corinth was determined to rebel against God's word and against their parents and against their church leaders and against authority in general, they might escape the consequences of that rebellion for a time. But ultimately, the decisions they make will come to rest upon them at the point of their judgment before Christ. That's been Paul's opening salvo in this letter. And that's what he's doing now in this letter. He's calling this church to repentance so they might receive a better reward in the day of the Lord. And the first issue Paul dealt with in this laundry list of issues, the first one he dealt with in chapter 5 last week at the very beginning, was the report that the church was tolerating sexual immorality among its members. We looked at that last week, how there was in this particular church a man and a woman making immoral choices. Now, in every church we said there will be men and women who make immoral choices. And when that happens, those things should concern us. Paul's bigger concern, though, was not the immorality of the couple per se. It was in the way the church as a body, had tolerated that behavior and that they had even celebrated, he said. It was an openly immoral lifestyle in and amongst the church and the church body had done nothing to correct it or react to it. Paul says the right response was for that church to have put the man out of fellowship so that his behavior would be corrected and in the process, that man and woman might have some hope to see whatever remained of their eternal reward preserved for the day of their judgment. And then on top of that, the church body learned a lesson. 
The church body learned that sin within the body is not acceptable and it must be addressed. Now, in chapter 5, where we pick up now, verse 9, Paul is going to connect this first issue, that is, of tolerating sin within the body, to a second problem that he's heard about in the church. And this is a problem of the church judging others appropriately. And that's the topic for this morning. We'll pick up in verse 9. Read with me. Paul wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So this is the passage in which Paul turns from the comments he made at the first half to a new topic related to the first. And this new topic is judging and specifically the church judging itself. In verse nine, Paul refers to an earlier letter that he's written to this church. That's how we know that this first letter to the Corinthians is not actually his first letter, as we said when we introduced the book as a whole. This is actually the second letter Paul wrote to them, but the first that was retained and put in the canon of Scripture. And Paul says, in that earlier letter, when I wrote to you the first time, I asked you not to associate with immoral people. The word immoral is a similar word to the one we saw earlier in this chapter, finds its same root in porneia in Greek. In this case, it's pornos, but it's the same root. It refers to immorality in a sexual sense most of the time, although it can be more general. But in most cases, when you see this word in Greek, it's used for three kinds of behavior, fornication, adultery or homosexuality. When the church read the letter, apparently they assumed Paul was saying, don't associate with the immoral people in the city of Corinth. Well, good luck with that. And what they must have done is they must have withdrawn themselves. We would imagine they must have withdrawn themselves as a church body from, for the most part, all of Corinthian society. They would have had to if they're going to avoid sexual immorality because sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. It was a part of society. It was built into the fabric of society. Perhaps they shunned their neighbors. Perhaps they stayed away from family or friends who were not believers. Perhaps they patronized only certain businesses within the church. I mean, we're not sure exactly what they were doing, but Paul has heard that they took his words from that first letter and they came to the conclusion that we've got to stay away from the immoral world around us. In short, they exercised judgment towards the unbelieving world. This is the type of judgment that Jesus was speaking of when he said in Luke chapter 6 that we are not to judge others. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said, But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Now look at the context in which he spoke those words. He begins in verse 35 with love your enemies. He says, be merciful to those who oppose you as the father is merciful to evil men. And then he ends with don't judge those people. Who are we talking about? Who opposes the church? Who is evil in God's sight? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. We are not to judge unbelievers. 
That's the command in Scripture. Jesus gave us this instruction to guard against us assuming an attitude of superiority or pride or arrogance against sinners in the face of our own salvation. Having received the grace of God through faith, we now have the potential to turn our noses up at the world and say, well, you don't have what I have. You're going to hell or something of that effect in our hearts. And we judge them for we feel that we have been put above them in some sense by God's grace. And that's exactly why Jesus turned to the church and said, do not do that. The word judge in this context means to consider ourselves better than they. We're holding their sin against them, forgetting that we are no different than they are in that respect. We are every bit the sinner that the rest of the world is even now, except that we've been forgiven of that. And one day we have a a promise to escape it altogether. But in the meantime, we have received forgiveness and we have been left here on this earth so that we might be an ambassador to that unbeliever, to the world around us. And we receive that forgiveness that we have so that we would be a witness to them about it. And an ambassador, by definition, cannot fulfill his or her mission if you treat your target audience with contempt. For what benefit is there in that? If you distance yourself or if I distance myself from the sinning world because of a judgmental heart that views ourselves as superior than they, then we fail in our appointed role as ambassadors for Christ. Period. If you withhold your fellowship and your kindness from evil men, from immoral people, from unbelievers, you are not making yourself more holy. For you are already washed clean by the blood of Christ. Furthermore, that judgment that you are extending to them is not going to bring them into repentance. And I wonder sometimes if that's in our hearts. You know, we we throw our nose up at people and we shun them when we think, well, this will show them, right? They'll they'll realize how wrong they are if I do these things to them. What does the Bible actually teach about this matter? Paul says in Romans that it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance, not shunning them, not judging them. We've been called as the body of Christ to bring the gospel message to a lost and dying world because that message is the solution to that problem of sin that we care so much about. It was the solution for us. It's the solution for them. But when we judge them in this context, in this sense, we are declaring, in effect, by our actions, by our attitudes, that they are unfit for our company and they are unfit for our message. They don't deserve it. Friends, that is a complete distortion of grace, for none of us deserve it. That's the whole point of grace. The truth is the opposite. Jesus delivered the gospel for the sake of the sinner, not the righteous. He came to heal the sick, not the healthy. That's why he spent time with them. And he was roundly criticized by men who in that day felt it was wrong for anyone who was of God's people to spend any time with the world that was not. And he criticized them for that hard attitude. If our judgment drives believers away, then we have withheld the very thing that we could offer them that would address their sin. And that's why Jesus says judgment is a sin in this kind of a context. The conclusion that the Corinthian church made from what Paul had written them was that they needed to ostracize themselves from the immorality of the world in order to be pleasing to God. And Paul is correcting that notion for them right now. In verse 10, he says he never meant for the church to disassociate from immoral people in the world. And he lists some of the kinds of immorality that he must have mentioned in his letter. 
He says, we're not to avoid the covetous of the world. We're not to avoid the swindlers. We're not to stay away from idolaters. And I love the fact that he chose these three. These are just representative, right? He could have chosen any three or any ten. Why did he choose these three? Well, look at them. The only way that you and I could avoid contact with people who covet, with people who cheat, with people who have idols, the only way you avoid those three is if you leave planet Earth. Literally every human being, including everyone in this room, is probably guilty of all three of these things at one time or another. Some of us hit the trifecta and we've got all three going on at the same time. Now, we are saved by grace through our faith so that we are not under the judgment for these things. We get that. We should get that. But that does not give us license to do these things, right? In the meantime, because we struggle with the flesh that is still sinful, we will have to contend with these things. We will fall at times and stumble and be guilty of these sins. We know that too. But among unbelievers, these behaviors are not just possible. They are status quo. They are common. I had a pastor once who used to say this. He says, why are we surprised when sinners sin? That's what sinners do. That's why we call them sinners. Sinners sin. It shouldn't shock us. And Paul says for the church to conclude that Paul wanted them to stay away from unbelievers who exhibit these traits was a patently ridiculous interpretation. And as we explained earlier, it's also against the mission of the church. We are supposed to spend time with these people so that we can persuade them to better things. Chief among them, the gospel, so that then they may have the ability through the power of the spirit to move beyond these things. Paul says in the end, the Lord will judge these people. So we aren't supposed to take the role. We aren't supposed to assume the role of judge of the world because we've already got one who's got that role and he'll do it just fine. Thank you. We don't need to take that role upon ourselves. In the meantime, though, we spend time on planet Earth so that we can influence that world by our gospel and by our life. And you can't influence it if you're not engaged with it. It's just that simple. It's literally impossible to limit our relationships with ungodly people. I have seen today a recent trend of judging the unbelieving world, contrary to what Paul's saying, in, in disobedience to Jesus' words, but it's taken a particularly unique form. And it's a form that I think gains wide acceptance because we don't stop to think about it deeply enough. And that form is the practice of boycotting companies because of the policies that they may have in one form or another to support immoral lifestyles or to fund practices we don't agree with politically. Because they contrast with biblical principles. And so we say, you know, don't buy anything from that company. Don't buy anything from that company. Now, why should it surprise us when company X, whatever it is, filled with immoral unbelievers, led by immoral, unbelieving leadership, with no guidance from the gospel, why should it surprise us that they go off and fund immoral political things or have immoral policies for their workers? Why would that surprise us? What do you expect them to do? They're sinners. They sin. Every single company is made up of immoral people who practice immoral things. In trying to live in this world without touching a stained or immoral company is like trying to swim in the unchlorinated end of a pool. It is literally impossible to do business only with moral companies. Did you eat this morning? The food you ate was grown by immoral farmers. Some of those farmers beat their wives. Some of those farmers don't pay their taxes. Some of those farmers that commit adultery. Some of those farmers are homosexual. And that food, it was transported to a store by a truck driver. That truck driver, in many cases, was an immoral man or woman. 
And then that food was stocked on grocery store shelves by sinful stockers and checked out by sinful cashiers. The car you drove there to pick it up with was built by sinful auto workers. The roads you drove on were built by sinful road makers. And when that fork picked up the food and put it in your mouth, the hand holding it was sinful. The problem that Paul was talking about here is the problem when we say we're going to disassociate ourselves from sin in a world that's full of it. It also ignores our purpose. We're here to influence it. Friends, if you say to yourself, I have a conviction, I don't want to spend money at this company, or I don't want to visit this business, or I don't want to be around that family, just be clear in your heart for why you have that conviction. Is it spirit-led, or is it judgmental? Is it because you just don't like what they do and you want to show them? Friends, do you know what you should do if you don't like what they do and you want to show them? Go walk in there every single day and talk to them about the gospel every single day. Now you have a real hope to fix that problem. Staying away is not fixing the problem. And if you think you're more holy because you're not spending your money there, well, when you go to the alternative business and you spend your money there, you're funding another group of sinful people just like you would have been in the first case. You didn't change anything. All you did was puff up your pride and your self-righteousness. I assure you, when we reach heaven, we'll be surrounded by a bunch of sinners that were saved by grace, just like we were. We are not instructed by Scripture to avoid immoral people in this world. We are not called to boycott companies so that we can show our dissatisfaction at their policies. We are not called to judge unbelievers, for there is nothing to be gained in doing so. We are called to go to them in a spirit of love with the gospel so that they might receive the same mercy we received when it came to us. So we are freely to associate with the unbelieving world, but we are not to participate with them in their sin. And that's the line we have to be clear on as we talk about this issue. We have to spend time with and among unbelievers if we're going to be effective as the gospel calls us to be. But we have to remember and we have to be careful to remain unstained by that sin. Jesus spent lots of time with tax collectors. Doesn't mean he cheated anybody. He spent lots of times with prostitutes. Doesn't mean he conducted himself in a sexually immoral way. There is a difference between being with them and being of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians later in this book, chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's the counter to what we're saying from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We need to associate with the world, but we need to keep it professional in the spiritual sense of our mission. Not turn it into something in which they become an influence on us and our morals are corrupted by their bad company. We can achieve that mission. Jesus did. The apostles did. We're called to do the same. We can spend time with them without engaging in their sin, without becoming a party to that sin. And that is our call. So as long as our association with a person is focused on bringing them to the knowledge of the truth and steers clear of the sin that they are committing, then we can be effective for the sake of the gospel. I like to think of it this way. My time spent with unbelievers is not a social event. It's about conducting the business of our father. Like an ambassador. You know, when an ambassador is sent to a foreign country, he's there on business. Now, that business includes parties, dinners, ribbon cuttings, fun events. But every single one of those events, he's there on business. He's representing the United States. He's there representing what we stand for. He can't let his guard down. He's never going to become a member of that foreign country. He's always a United States citizen, but he's there as an ambassador. Think of it that way and you'll do well. So Paul says the church must associate with the sinners of the world, but not to associate with immoral 
unrepentant believers. If someone in the church consistently, unrepentantly engages in immoral behavior, then we are to judge them and set them outside fellowship. What's so ironic to me is that the church has such a quickness to judge the unbelieving world and such a reticence to judge itself. And yet that's what the scripture calls us to do. Because unlike unbelievers, the church is commanded to judge believers. We don't even have an option. When Paul says so-called brothers, the church was to judge the so-called brother. That word for so-called on Amazo, it literally means named. The one who is named a brother. I don't think Paul is suggesting that everyone who engages in this kind of lifestyle is automatically not to be considered a believer. He's simply drawing the obvious question. He's calling into question the heart of anyone who makes no effort to conform their life to the commandments of Christ. It is a question. It becomes a question. They're so-called. They might be. They might not be. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. If they have taken on the name, if they are declaring themselves to be of us, then they will be held to the judgment of the church. And if they are committed to living in an immoral way, they need to be put out the church, put outside. Now, we've spent last week and now again this week talking about this issue. And so, you know, it may seem like it's, gosh, we're kind of harping on this, aren't we? Well, it is percentage wise very infrequent, but it's ever so important that we do it. There's three aspects to the way Paul says this needs to be done before we run off and take it upon ourselves to start being church inspectors and judges and all the other things. Let's understand there are three aspects to what Paul is asking for here that need to be in place before we would activate Paul's instructions. First, notice we are judging immorality. We are not judging bad behavior in some lesser form. It's not a question of whether someone dresses the right way. We're not judging rude behavior. We're not talking about the little everyday things that might annoy us, the lack of conformity that we might see in the church where we're all supposed to go left and somebody likes to go right all the time. And this is not at that level. We're talking here about a judgment for someone who is morally corrupt and unrepentant and doing damage to the body as a result. Serious matters of immoral behavior. Going back to something I said last week, we don't want to become busybodies in this church. Nor do we want to seek conflict. The whole point in this is to face something that's been brought to us, that's an outward open issue that's causing disruption in the body, and we have to deal with it. So the first issue is we're talking about openly immoral members of the body. Secondly, notice this is a corporate judgment based on corporate concerns. Believers are not commanded, nor are we even allowed to make a judgment about another believer much less assess a personal penalty against them. So we cannot look to one person to another and say, you know what, I don't like what you're doing. I'm going to put you outside my fellowship. This is a corporate matter. So Paul is speaking about how the body behaves in response to one of its members. So on an individual basis, what is our responsibility to someone who we feel may need correction? Our personal response is always, first and foremost, forgiveness. Always we begin with forgiveness for the individual, for whatever their offense is to us, for whatever their sin may be, we forgive them. We forgive each other and we show grace to each other because that's the basis for Christian love. But it may sound strange, and yet this is absolutely true. It is possible for a congregation to individually forgive a member of the body while at the same time that corporate body puts them outside fellowship. It is possible to individually forgive forgive someone while corporately holding them to account. We do that today in another context. In a case of a victim who may be asked to testify against her attacker at a trial, 
Sometimes you'll hear the victim say, I've forgiven this man for what he did to me. And nevertheless, that woman takes the stand. She testifies so that he gets his appropriate punishment as dictated by the law and the courts of the land. She can forgive him individually while still holding him accountable according to the law. And the Bible's asking us at times, rare times, to do much the same. To hold ourselves accountable, to judge one another in that sense, but on an individual level, to show forgiveness. And then lastly, the third thing we need to remember is the response of this church must be unified. It must be complete separation. Paul emphasizes the church may not even eat with this person. There's no common ground here. It's the same as the example he used last week with leaven. You can't leaven just half of the dough. You can't swim in the unchlorinated part of the pool, as I say. You have to have an all-or-nothing attitude about this because the practical implications are significant. A person's family might need to separate from someone as well. You have a rebellious teen. That rebellious teen needs to be addressed within the context of the church the way any other rebellion would be, if it's immoral, if it's serious, and if it's unrepentant, which means not even their own family should eat with them. It's hard, isn't it? Remember, the church family is a stronger bond, according to Scripture, than our earthly family. And remember that the point to these steps is to trigger repentance. So ultimately, there will be restoration, only this time without the sin that was there the first time. I mean, the whole point of this is not to shame. It's not to drive people away. It's to drive them to their knees. If we are willing to cover over sin in any context within the church, we are working against the best interests of the spirit in that person's heart to bring them to repentance. Next week, we're going to continue to this general topic of judgment as Paul moves into the third concern in this church. And he's heard that there are individual members of this church who have had disputes with one another. And as they go to resolve these disputes, rather than resolve them within the church, they go to the local Greek courts and they sue one another to resolve their differences. And Paul's going to explain next week why this is wrong and why there is a better way. And again, it's centered on arrogance and hypocritical, ignorant behavior within the church. And that's going to lead Paul into a discussion of the eternal judgment and our role in executing that judgment as God permits. Father, we want to behave properly so that we might represent you in an honorable way. And we want to deal with the sin that might come up within our members of our body, Father. We want to deal with that in the proper way. We want to restore. We want to love people. We want to encourage them to follow you with a true and faithful heart. We want to exhort them to put sin away. But we also ask, Father, that you give us the courage to, to deal with those who might need our correction in a way that's biblically correct, Father. Judging them as you appoint, calling them to repent, seeking them to turn. But at the end of the day, Father, if they are determined to live in sin, then we hand them over to you and let you judge by setting them outside our fellowship. We pray, Father, that would never have to happen. But if you bring it to our attention, Father, I pray we have the courage to do the right thing. And Father, I also pray that we would not take that spirit of judgment which is appropriate inside these walls and move it to the world outside. That we would see the world with mercy and with love and, and have the pity on them that you had on us. And to not let their sin be a barrier for our sake to bring the gospel, but make it a magnet, Father. Help us to go to the men and women who need us the most, who need this message the most. Give us a heart to serve you by being ambassadors in that way. For we know, Father, that 
you are kind to unholy and ungrateful and evil men like you were to us. Let us see that heart when we reach the unbelieving world. And thank you, Father, for the chance to celebrate the communion this morning as we remember that all of these things are possible because your son made the ultimate sacrifice for us and taking our sin on that cross. Help us, Father, to keep that spirit in our heart this week. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.